I'm J.P. Tuesday. And I'm Kiki Cannon. As lifelong Disney fans, the work of countless talented Disney creatives have shaped our lives. Now, as the Disney catalog expands, we're taking a journey through film and television to discover if that spark that shaped us as children lives on in adulthood. Does your favorite Disney media still cast that same spell? Join us as we find out. We are Rewatching the Magic. Commander Cannon to the bridge. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, can I bring a drink? I've, I've got, I've got a drink. I mean, it, it, I can seal it if you want. No, no, you're good. We're pretty lax here. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Um, we are not alone this week. Our, once again, uh, coming on to the bridge, our good friend, Adam Lickford Johnson. Hi, I just got back from my Jaloja, and I feel 10 pounds lighter. <laughs> Jaloja! Jaloja! <laughs> I hope everybody jaloja before we got into the vehicle. We are not stopping. Okay, so <laughs> before we get into any of that, uh, we have a brand new Thor trailer that came out just a few hours before we, we recorded and yeah, this one's telling us a lot more about what this movie's going to be about than the first trailer did. Um, first thing I want to talk about: Thor has a Loki tattoo. Oh, I missed that. Yeah, that that one I, part. Where I also missed that. How did I miss that? When 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 Zeus flicks and all of Thor's clothes come off, there is a Loki tattoo. His back has the Loki crown on it. He has a tattoo of his dead brother. That's that's very sweet. That, that that's nice. That that Thor has that on his body. He has his brother with him. Oh my it, god, that is that is a tattoo, isn't it? Half about half his back is its Loki tattoo. I think I was more focused on the pixelation. So yeah, I was. Uh... You were looking at the full Hemsworth, aren't you? <laughs> Well, I was eating grapes at the time, so I, I'm ass, I'm assuming in the uh, the actual theater that's not going to be pixelated, probably. I mean, we had Hulk's CGI bare buttocks in Ragnarok. I, I I wouldn't doubt that we would see the full Hemsworth in in this movie, at least from the back end. Yes. <laughs> so I've I've myself have dubbed this movie uh, Thor by Panic and Thunder. <laughs> I don't think we're panicking. I'm not panicking. Who's panicking? <laughs> but yeah, everyone in this movie is very hot. Well, it's it's Taika's world, and we're all just. Uh, and yes, you know. I'm including Korg in that in that assessment. <laughs> yeah, you know, Korg was super into it. <laughs> I I don't know I don't know if, that was my favorite part of that scene with Korg leaning in like I I could use a better view. <laughs> all we need is like the uh, the 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 opera lenses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the girls are just sharing grapes, and Korg is like, uh, "Anybody else wanting a, a better seat for this?" The um, fact that the Greek gods were fainting at the sight of Thor's other hammer, <laughs> yeah. Is that one called Mjolnir as well? <laughs> I wouldn't doubt it if it was. <laughs> uh, this does give, even though we kind of had the confirmation in Endgame, this does give some confirmation that Jane was blipped. Because she even says, what's it been, like, four years? It's been eight years, but yeah. Well, she's also way more over it than Thor is. It's interesting that 
how not over it Thor is considering part of what we've seen in the trailer is Thor with other people. I think it's one of those things is that he saw her again for the first time in eight years and then all of those old feelings came back. Like, you know, out of sight, out of mind kind of deal. Well, there's feelings coming back and there's knowing exactly how much time has passed. <laughs> Which, for someone with that lifespan, let's just say. Some of the more interesting things to me, though, kind of jokes aside, is I really love the design of Gore. Gore the God Butcher, yeah. A l- reminds me a lot of Quan Chi for Mortal Kombat. Yeah, there is a there is a bit of that. Bale pulls it off. I mean, he's al- he's always been good at playing a villain. We have another former Batman playing uh, a Marvel villain. I I think the DC people always fare better coming over to Marvel than the other way around. You know, some of the things that we we get, you know, the line about you're you're different than the others I've come across because you actually have something to fight for is a pretty interesting line. There's that one clip where we see Gore holding someone in his arms. I assume that would be his wife or some other loved one to him. Probably is the, the catalyst for him going, all all gods must die. Because his, his whole thing is that he has prayed to gods his whole life, and they have forsaken him, and now he's just done with it. Taika has, has made a statement about how interesting it's going to be for Thor to have the the love of his life show up dressed like him. And I thought, so he is his brother. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, So um, I also thought it was interesting because we get to see a little bit more of the, um, the costuming. And I thought it was funny that Thor is the one with the boob armor. I mean, have you seen his pecs? But I think it's really funny that they try to do like, Fem Thor armor, which they've done in the comics, you know, because, I mean, that that idea of Jane becoming Thor, you know, taken from the comics, as we've discussed, but hers is kind of just, it's molded, but it's not like two separate boob plates, you know, which I loathe, because that'll get you killed in a battle real quick. Yes, it's just a but, funnel directly to your sternum. Yeah, you want you want to take a blow that will crush your sternum immediately into your internal organs. Try doing molded boob plate. But ironically, that's what they've given Thor. So, you know, ha- have fun with your crushed sternum there, which I thought was hilarious. I I, I will be, I will admit I'm not super familiar with uh where the is it the Greek pantheon that they is that Olympus yeah, yeah. where they where they are? I'm not yeah. familiar how that fits into the Marvel universe, so that I'm looking forward to seeing how that works out. I mean, Greek gods have shown up in in Marvel. Hercules has been a regular ally to Thor in the comics, so that's what I'm looking forward to. I know we we're seeing Zeus. I, I'm wondering if we are going to see Hercules in, in this movie. I'm loving the armor design for King Valkyrie. Can we? Can, can oh we yeah. Just, oh, it's so yeah, good. I, I'll take some of that. So good. That's I'm 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 just loving that that costume. Every costume that they put her in is just such a mood. (laughs) 
<laughs> but I kind of like this one over the white armor she had in the previous movies. Yeah. And that that suit. I mean, we talked about that in the teaser, but that's you know. Yeah. And I love story time with Korg. Yeah. I hope that they do like recap things. I mean, what if what if this entire movie is just narrated by Korg? I would love that, but I also just want like, you know, YouTube videos leading up to the film, you know. Korg recaps everything with Thor up to this point. Yeah. Would you want Korg or Luis doing that? Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm 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 with Adam. Yes. <laughs> I just both of them like and you know on a couch. To... <laughs> yeah. Deadpool can come too. <laughs> yeah. It it is so weirdly interesting people's reaction to this trailer because I've seen a lot of people just being like oh man you know that that one you know the doing Ragnarok just that you know that that one off was kind of it was fun but this is going to be the whole tone now this isn't my Thor and I was like you know what screw that this is my Thor <laughs> the Thor movies were always Funny. I mean, even the the first Thor was really hilarious. I will never forget the uh, the laugh out loud moment I had when Jane backed the truck into him as he was coming out of the hospital. Yeah. It's like, I <laughs> well, where are we going to find him? You. Smack. <laughs> I don't mean to keep hitting you with my car. I swear. Like it's like this is the best meet cute ever. Just keeps hitting a dude with a car. Um, I mean, would they prefer Thor from the comics just spewing pseudo Shakespearean English and being pompous? I mean, that was kind of the tone of the first film, except it understood how kind of ridiculous that was. Because Stan always understood how kind of ridiculous that was. That was kind of the point of Thor. And Stan knew that. I mean, we talked about that when we talked about Thor. Stan always said Thor was his way of being weirdly pseudo-Shakespearean and philosophical while understanding that he didn't know anything about either Shakespeare or philosophy. <laughs> and I was like... He kind and, of understood that. Was or Norse gods, for that matter. Or Norse gods, for that matter. Because, wow, does it not get any of that right. And and Kenneth Branagh got, understood that. And he made a great movie from that. Yeah, because if anybody is open to absolutely taking the piss out of themselves, it's Kenneth Branagh. So, I mean, he's always... Delroy Lockhart. Well, yeah, I mean, he he was kind of a really good choice for that. Yeah, because he is he's capable of all that and he's always been a really good choice for Shakespearean comedy because he's always understood that Shakespeare didn't take himself seriously either, you know. It's like so that's why that first movie worked and people in the same way they misunderstand Shakespeare have kind of started looking back on the first one going like that was serious drama, my dudes. No, it wasn't. 
but this yeah no this is this is perfectly fine in the evolution of these films and for the character so i don't know what anybody's talking about this looks amazing and i cannot wait to see it me neither july can't get can't get close enough because yeah all right it's time all right let's move on to star trek but not star trek seth trek seth trek what do you do when you really really want to make star trek the next generation but does it but don't have the rights to star trek the next generation you make your own star trek the next generation with blackjack and yeah <laughs> and gelatinous beings <laughs> yeah. i mean there used to be a time where it seemed like every couple of months we were hearing Seth Farland wants to reboot blank. Uh, remember when he wanted when that came out that he wanted to reboot the Flintstones? Well, I mean, he already did that. It's called Family Guy. I mean, legit Flintstones. I think the called the Flintstones. But you know, I it him wanting to do his own version of Star Trek would have fit in that in that vibe at the time, and he. He did. We have the Orville. When it came out, there were a lot because it came out at the same time that Star Trek Discovery did, and there were a lot of people who did not like what Discovery was doing during those first few episodes, and and saw the Orville and saying, "This is what Star Trek should be." You know, Seth is getting you know the guy known for making Family Guy is making a better Star Trek than the guys who are making Star Trek. And see, I am I am not one of those types. Uh, I I I know that's an unpopular opinion, but I I I've been really loving all the new Star Trek series, but I also love the Orville just as much. And I I don't think it has to be an either or thing. I think I think it it can all be good if you like it all. I'm somewhere in the middle on that because I I've never been able to get into Discovery or some of the other. Of the new Star Trek shows. I've given them all a shot. Most of them have not. Gotten to me. I've watched all of Picard. And mostly liked it. Uh, season 2 was. A, a bit hit hit or miss for me. Um, really loving. Uh, Strange New Worlds. And you know. There's room for every. There's so much new yeah. Star Trek. That it doesn't matter if you don't like one or another. Because there's another one that you might like. <laughs> Yeah, I'm 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 willing to let everybody like what they like. As far as the the thing, I was I was just trying to say like I am one of the people who was not as drawn in by the the new Star Trek shows. You know, you were very much drawn in by the new Star Trek shows. Tuesday, I don't think that you really have watched I, much of I've the new I've not watched all of them mostly because I I don't have cable and I really do cannot afford to put down any money for Paramount Plus at the, at the current time. Yeah, um, which is fair. I mean, too many streaming services at the moment. I, I've uh, only got it now because I have it for a year free with my cell phone plan. So. Yeah. Orville, I think, was more of a... I like sci-fi. I really like Seth MacFarlane, which is a hit or miss for a lot of people. That's another thing that's a very love or hate relationship for a lot of people. Like, I am not a huge Family Guy fan myself, 
or American Dad or really pretty much anything else Seth MacFarlane has done. Like, I, I recognize the talent. It's just not really for me. I, on the other hand, very much, I liked Family Guy at the beginning. I stayed with it in all the reruns through the years that it was just on all the time on Adult Swim. Stayed with it when it came back. Um, Still watch it now. I do like American Dad. Will still watch American Dad. He's also got all the music albums out that he does, you know. Yeah, you have expressed your your appreciation for Seth's singing voice over the years. Yeah, well, I mean, I I own his Christmas album, and we all know how I feel about Christmas. Like, that stuff is on my phone, and I will listen to it. I might I even sing. listen to it in a month that does not have a Christmas. <laughs> um, so, yeah, no. I mean, it's it's a thing. Like, I'm really uh, surprised they haven't had him sing really on the Orville yet. There was been, and there's been opportunities for him to sing. But, you know, yeah. Yeah, it's... It's interesting because they've gone more for um, Scott Grimes singing. Yeah. Than... Who can also sing really well. Oh, yeah. It's more of a... If if you walked up to me and were like, hey, Kiki, would you be interested in, like, Star Trek, but it's also done by Seth MacFarlane? I, I mean, how how much do you have to reach into a grab bag of things and pull out things that appeal to the very narrow niche of things I would be into, you know? Um, so I think this was always going to be my thing. Yeah, probably. And, you know, I, I just, I, I, when it was coming out, I kept reading about how he was, uh, really inspired by specifically Star Trek, the next generation, which is still my favorite Star Trek series. And you can see it and, even you know, I, in, in the, in the main cast specifically, you know, yeah. the, the archetypes that they're using for these characters and we'll get into it. Yeah. But yeah. And then, you know, I get that same feeling watching the Orville that I get watching Next Generation. It's, like, unabashedly hopeful. It's, it's, it's sweeping. It's, it's, it's enormous. Like, it's, it's everything that I, I got from Next Generation, but, like, with some modern sensibility and humor thrown in. Yeah, and I think a lot of people were, that were down on it in the beginning were down on it because of the humor. Like, oh, it's Star Trek, but if they tried to put humor in it. I'm like, what Star Trek were you people watching? Because Star Trek always had humor. I think those are a lot, for a lot of people, they're going to uh, the Abrams track, because a lot of people, that was their first exposure to it, and that's what they're comparing it to. That's the best I can think of. But, I mean, this was specifically a throwback to... The original series and Next Generation, which always had humor. As I mean, did, I think as did even the the darker shows in the original run, like Deep Space Nine and 
Voyager were still funny. I yeah, think it, I think like like you would get the a person who would like like the third like the hardcore Star Wars fans. They'll look back at the original trilogy and say how serious it was. This was, you know, drama and completely forgetting all of the silly parts into it and say, oh, no, no, that that all all the silly parts came with the prequels and the sequel. That was never in my original trilogy. Looking back at the original trilogy, like in the same direction, like they like they're so they take the, 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 the material so seriously that they don't that they just block out all the comedic moments that are in that original trilogy like they would block out the comedic moments of the original uh original star trek next generation etc because in their mind that's that's what they formed it to be yeah but then you have an episode like the trouble with tribbles which was yeah. clearly just a comedy episode and even the serious episodes have jokes all throughout i mean it's constantly you know the original series is constantly Bones making jokes at Spock's expense or Chekhov talking about what random thing was invented in Russia this week or, you know, I mean, it's... Original Star yeah. Trek's comedy influenced Lost in Space. Lost in Space was completely serious and they were losing the ratings war to Star Trek. So they had to go a bit more comedic in the second season onwards. That shows you the how much the comedic power that original Trek had at the time. And you know, I I think some of the that that criticism of early Orville has a little bit of merit to it because I think it took them a little while to find the right balance of the humor to the rest of the story. But they, I think they they got there after the first few episodes. Yeah. Like, like, yeah, I I think I think you might be right in the fact that the first few episodes they lean a little two into this is the seth mcfarland space show you know you know like the whole anti-banana rave sequence which is hilarious but also a little out of place in that scene yeah it does it does feel like they're being slightly unprofessional in in their mocking of the of the anti-banana ray but it's still got some of my favorite lines you know we need no longer fear the banana it's interesting in in that sense that people I think I, I think just a lot of people were automatically very They're assuming into, it was going to be family guy in space. Yeah. I was thinking that, yeah. But also I think it took a little while for people to realize you can have a comedy drama mix and have it work. Um because they were used to especially with sci-fi is it comedy sci-fi or is it drama sci-fi you know is this the prestige sci-fi show or is it the goofy sci-fi show like well can it not be a little bit of both you know is it the expanse or is it red dwarf yeah and i'm like well can't it can't it have you know can't it be you know, a robberous red dwarf where it's funny, but also it's like tear jerking because you get the reveal of where Lister comes from and you want to cry a little bit. You know, I don't know. I I like I like that that mix, but 
you can tell when you watch this show, and I think this is one of my favorite things about it, the people making it, specifically Seth, this is so much like, I'm going to be a geek about all the stuff I love and you're not going to stop me, which I kind of respect. And, it, you know, it goes beyond the Star Trek stuff, especially with the the 20th century references throughout the series. The music that's used, the film clips that are used. Well, and I I, I find the, you know, like the, the, the use of pop music and all that kind of stuff very refreshing. And I think it's a great counter to uh, Star Trek always using uh, classical music as what people listen to for recreation in uh, the 24th century for some reason. I mean, yeah, Picard but, is very into, you know, the quote unquote highbrow classical music to show that he's educated and stuff. And I'm thinking like every week there's a string quartet recital on the, on the enterprise. <laughs> yeah. But we think of that as the highbrow educated thing, because it's like, well, you know, something that's from 400 years ago. Well, yeah, but move that 400 years into our future. What would they be considered the highbrow classical educated thing? Dolly Parton. <laughs> He's going to know Dolly Parton and Billy Joel and Broadway musicals and stuff because it's from our current time, which is now going to be 400 years in his past. And Dolly Parton is used in one of my favorite sequences in the whole series, which I won't discuss now because it's a bit spoilery. Yeah, well, we'll get to that later. But that's what would be their classical literature because, you know, move it ahead in time. But that, you know, that's kind of why I found the complaints about the Beastie Boys being in the Abrams Star Trek movies a little uh, disingenuous. Because, I mean, like, why wouldn't they also listen to the Beastie Boys in addition to everything else? Why wouldn't people 500 years from now look about look at music from the 90s and not see it as classical music? Yeah, and we consider that like, oh, ha, 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 but wouldn't it? Like, if you go back 400 years and tell somebody then that a contemporary composer is like, well, this is what children study in school as the height of, you know, even if you go back and tell someone, oh, yeah, kids are going to study Shakespeare in school, and th they're going to turn around as you think, that jackass? Yeah, the, the the guy who writes the dick and fart jokes? That guy? Yeah, no, they, they absolutely would not believe you. <laughs> Which makes me wonder, 500 years from now, will they look back at Seth MacFarlane in the same way? I, I mean, we don't know, because we don't know what will survive. Yeah. Which is always the thing. Um, so it is very possible that things we look at now and we go like, oh, that's garbage for the masses. Well, yeah, but sometimes it becomes for the masses for a reason, you know. Um, and you'll have Commander Kelly Grayson singing them at karaoke aboard a starship. <laughs> exactly. It's interesting to have it put in that context, and I like that this show doesn't, use it as a punchline in a lot of ways like star trek always used it as like remember the greats it, it's albert einstein and so and so of vulcan and you know it's like it's 
it's always just like people we would recognize and then third alien name, you know? But we have really cool things like the Kermit the Frog through line. Yeah, McFarlane. Which I, which I love. Yeah, Ed I love, that Ed, I love yeah, that Ed describes him as a, as a great leader. I mean, when you have to wrangle frogs and bears and chickens and things, you better be a good leader. But that is the entire point of the Muppet movie, which we've talked about, is that Kermit discovers that he didn't intend to be a leader, but he is one. And that is also the point of the character arc of Mercer. You know, Mercer brings on board this Kermit the Frog toy to kind of remind him of leadership. But he follows a, a similar path, you know, without getting too spoilery. He is the guy who doesn't really believe in himself or intend to make a found family, and he ends up doing that anyway. Yeah, and keep in mind that this was before Disney bought 20th Century Fox. Yeah, it's just Seth MacFarlane really likes Muppets. Yeah. So, so they, had to, um, they had, to, had to license Kermit the Frog for that, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, this is, we haven't really mentioned it, but this is one of those those things that got bought. It was not originally a Disney show, and then as so many things happen, one day they all woke up and realized they were working for Disney. But the the third season, which comes out right after this episode goes up, will be the first released under Disney. And in some countries will be on Disney+. Plus. Yeah, in America it will be on Hulu, which is owned by Disney, but in Majority in other owned by Disney. Huh? Majority owned by Disney. They don't 100% own it. Well, yeah, it's it's part of the the buyout merger thing. So, uh it will air on Disney Plus in a lot of the uh rest of the world. We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Hey, this is Tuesday, editing the episode. At this point, Adam's microphone started having some problems, and he had to switch out. Unfortunately, he had only had a lower-quality mic available to him at the time, so there's going to be some weird noises f coming from his end for the rest of this episode, and we apologize for it. But hopefully that does not ruin your listening experience with the rest of this episode. Thank you. Now, back to our show. Let's just talk about the the premise real quick if there's anybody that hasn't seen it and wants to be talked into it we do have the idea that uh you know within the first couple of minutes we get the kind of sitcommy opening i guess of uh starship captain ed mercer coming home to his wife kelly except he finds her in bed with a weird blue alien it's Rob Lowe in a wonderful cameo that comes back later in the series. That that leads to a divorce that kind of derails Ed's career until he is given command of the Orville. It's not really the most prestigious ship, but it could get his career back on track. 
The only problem is that it's in need of a first officer, and the only available first officer is, oops, his ex-wife Kelly. Hilarity ensues. Other than that, it's your typical Star Trek premise of ship going around the galaxy, searching out new worlds and new civilizations. Boldly go, bloody bloody blah. But with a kind of ragtag misfit crew. Yeah, you have a various alien species on board, as well as your human characters. And a lot of them are, you know, not the best. Some of them are rather unconventional kind of characters. People that may not make it onto the high-class starships. So they're here. Yeah, the helmsman is specifically there because he's Ed's best friend. He, and he also happens to be one of the best pilots in the fleet, but he's also a bit of a screw-up. Yeah, he's never really applied himself. He's excellent at his job, but he's kind of lazy and, you know, you know, rather laid back. He had been stuck on desk duty because he tried to impress a date with a rather dangerous uh, piloting maneuver and uh, kind of screwed that up. That one is played by... Uh, by Scott Grimes, who, uh, if you watch Seth MacFarlane's other work, is uh, on American Dad. Speaking of characters that are kind of unconventional, you have, uh, our, uh, for the first season at least, security officer Alara Catan, who, uh, while one of the shortest members of the crew, is incredibly strong because of her alien heritage. Her planet is very dense in gravity, which, because she has lived on it her whole life, in normal Earth-type gravity, she is very strong. By own admittance, she's only on the ship because of that. And that's part of her story arc as well, is that she feels she hasn't earned her position through her work, but rather, for lack of a better term, alien affirmative action. And she's played by Helston Sage, who does an amazing amazing role in this yeah and it's kind of interesting because the the uh Zelayan people to her alien race they are mostly um scientists or artists they scholars look, yeah they look down on any sort of military service so she is very it's very rare for anyone from her species to be there because they are not really interested in joining up with the Union fleet. We get our doctor, uh, Dr. Claire Finn, who is on the show because she was on uh, Deep Space Nine. <laughs> <laughs> You will remember Penny Johnson Gerald if you watch Deep Space Nine because she was Cassidy Yates, also known as the eventual wife of Benjamin Sisko. She was also on uh, that cop show that Nathan Fillion, uh, Castle. Oh yeah, she did. She, she was, she was, she was the captain of the precinct there. Eventually, yeah. But uh, she is only on the ship because she wants to go where she is needed. So she specifically requests the Orville because she thinks they need her. Because of Mercer's reputation. <laughs> yeah. We get uh, 
Lieutenant Lamar, who, uh, much like Gordon Malloy, he's very laid back and kind of a screw up. And then we very quickly discover that he's sort of a genius, but he hides it. Because yeah. he didn't want to be an outcast. One of, one of my favorite things from the pilot is how quickly Gordon and John just become best friends. Yeah, they're they're very much two peas in a pod. And then you you find out later that no John is is very intelligent and very quick to to pick things up, but and he Gordon he really hides is it. an idiot. Yeah, Gordon Gordon on the other hand is very much an actual idiot, but also the the best pilot ever. And then we get Bordis, who is from the Mocklin species, who are a single gender species, or are they? Dun dun dun. Um, very serious, very warriors. To, very, I mean, it, I mean, he's Klingonish. Klingonish. Yeah, they're they're kind of like cross between Klingons and Vulcans. Yeah, it's very logical, but also very warlike. Yeah. Very, um, very self-serious. Yeah. Don't don't understand humor. You know, that kind of thing. But boy, can they get down on the dance floor. Yeah. Very good dancers. Uh, kind of rounding out the crew, we get Isaac, our artificial life form. Our data. <laughs> Yeah, he is from a species of all artificial life forms that uh, are trying to decide whether or not to join the union. Uh, but there's a bit of a an issue because they generally view biological life forms as completely inferior to themselves. So they're trying to figure out if joining a group of all uh, biological life forms is, you know, really for them. So they're there to study uh, biologicals and see what's up with them. So they Mark send Jack Isaac. Yeah, Mark Jackson, who plays Isaac. When I first saw the show, I thought that was Brent Spiner. The impression is flawless. Yeah, and uh, with without, you know, outside of the this suit he has a very very similar body type to doug jones very skinny very tall yeah the the very skinny tall you know very physical kind of actor it's kind of interesting that there is that one moment in the show where mark jackson gets to play a character uh using his own face and uh, it's it's very interesting because when I saw that, I was like, that guy could be related to Doug Jones. <laughs> yeah, so. of course, uh, in season two, we are introduced to another Zalarian, Talakiali, who, um, unlike Alara, her family is the black sheep of their world because they are a military family. I mean, the, the good thing about uh, Orville is that they do remind us that n not every species is a monolith you know yeah, there's, there's there's no model they, they, they avoid the monoculture uh, trope in sci-fi pretty well 
there are there are you know general culture things they they do that pretty well you know mm. um but they do remind us that not everyone from every culture believes everything equally there, there's there's a, there are a few things like that that i think the orville does a lot better than star trek ever has and that's that's one of them that they, they show cultures as being complex and you know more than just a an archetype yeah i mean not not to say by any means that orville is a flawless show in that respect no because no show is you can at least tell that they try on some level uh whether or not they succeed is is up for debate but that you can at least give them points for attempting yeah. um on some levels we do have uh one one other that we we have to bring up uh on the crew and that is yafit which might Yafet. be my favorite character all cgi um, character yeah entirely cgi character and is a gelatinous blob uh, voiced by Norm MacDonald, who has since passed, unfortunately. However, it is said that he will be in the third season. And that he's re he recorded all his lines before he passed, basically. Uh, but Yafit is the best. <laughs> I just adore Yafit. I love yeah, his introduction I... with, with Ed running through the ship and then running through Yafit. <laughs> Sorry, man. You okay? Yeah. No, no, it's cool, it's cool, it's fine. <laughs> and the number of guest stars that have been on this show already, granted, yes, a lot of these are people who who, who uh, McFarlane knows, but he was able to pull some really great names. Victor Garber as Admiral Hasey, um, who gives him the job in the first place. Ted Danson as another Admiral, Kelly Who. Uh, Mike Henry keeps showing up as Dan, which if you uh, watch... Family Guy and American Dad, you'll know that uh, Mike Henry shows up a lot in, in those. I love that he's um, Lieutenant Dan. Yeah, <laughs> Lieutenant Dan. Yeah, I, of course, if you watch Star Trek, there are just so many Star Trek guest stars. Robert Picardo is one of my, was, one, was one of my favorite cameos in this series. Yeah, and Tim Ross shows up in an episode. Marina Sirtis shows up in an episode. You get uh, some... Trek guest stars like Tony Todd, Brian Thompson shows up in an episode. Uh, some Trek people work behind the scenes, like Jonathan Frakes just directs a bunch of episodes. Robert Duncan McNeil directs episodes. Brandon Braga, who worked on uh, Trek, uh, comes in to direct episodes. There's, there's, um, a, there's a great blooper I think you showed me, Kiki, where, where Seth MacFarlane messes up some bit of techno babble and you hear Frakes off camera going, are you going to pretend that you got that? We have a Dysonium-powered quantum drive system capable of ex speeds exceeding 10 light years per hour. Don't pretend you got that way. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, Ed Mercer messing up techno babble is in character. Yeah. Oh yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> but Frank's calling him out on it was just the best because everyone on set just died. <laughs> and and if you want to go into the other star franchise, as a space consultant, John Favreau. Yeah, Favreau did 
produce and uh, I think even directed. Yeah, he directed the uh, pilot. And if you want to keep going with the Star Wars connection, I mean, Liam Neeson shows up in one episode. Yeah. So I forgot Liam Neeson was on the show. Yeah, that's because because he shows up like on a view screen. Like he's not he doesn't even interact with the characters. It's just like they turn on a view screen. It's like, hi, I'm Liam Neeson. I'm just here to. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure they just they called him at his house in Ireland and said, hey, do you have a camera? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and one of the cameos in this that I didn't even catch until I saw the credits was Bruce Willis. He's not even he's not even credited, actually. It's you have to look it up on on IMDb or something to even catch that because he's not even in the the credits of the show. It's one line, and I guess that's not enough to credit him. But yeah, Bruce Willis plays a flower alien in one episode. It's just that's him. Bruce Willis. Yeah. yeah. Oh my it god. Is. Yeah. <laughs> it is enough to credit him. I think he asked not to be credited. Yeah. Patrick Warburton shows up again. You know, if you're a Family Guy fan. Holland Taylor and Jeffrey Tambor or Ed's parents in one episode. There's little Easter eggs in how some characters are named. Like all the admirals are named after famous admirals from history, which I thought was pretty cool. The Orville itself is named after Orville Wright. Yep. Yeah. And the character of Isaac named after Isaac Newton. Isaac Newton. Which they, they actually do explain on the show. You know, as a Kalon, he wouldn't have a name. He'd just have a designation, a a numerical designation. But the humans decided to name him. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, the a lot of the episode names are very meaningful. Uh, A lot of them come from songs or musicals. Um, You get things like. Nothing left on Earth excepting fishes. Yeah, nothing left on Earth excepting fishes, which is uh, from the King, King and I. And you get um, like a happy refrain, which is from Singing in the Rain. Some are done better than others. They, but they try at least to use the sci-fi premise to talk about modern issues a lot. Very much like Star Trek would, but this one is a little bit more on the nose. Um, there's one episode that really kind of takes a look at the social media culture that we have now. Yeah. And how that affects actual me- actual moments. You know, uh, imagine a world where everything was decided based on likes and retweets. Some of them, some of them, like I said, some of them work better than others, but I think that it tries, and in that trying, it succeeds more than it fails. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you want to, if you want to talk more, I mean, where it really succeeds is in LGBTQ representation, I would say, especially with the Mocklins. Since they are, for the most part, an all male race, so one of the health, one of the big relationships that we see throughout the show is a relationship between two men. Yeah, but the, the Mucklins have their have their own problems. You know, the, the way yeah. what happens with Topa is uh, certainly not great. Yeah. But uh, you know, and that's a, that. And I and I, I understand what they were 
trying to tell the story they were trying to tell with that one, but I, I think they fell short of the mark on that one. Yeah. Yeah, the the Mocklins are kind of a, it's a can of worms uh, for a lot of people, and I see why. Yeah. Uh, well, when you, I, like I said, having a relationship between two men, mostly with a creator who is not gay in McFarlane. Yeah, I, I did like that aspect of it. Also, the fact that, I mean, let's just kind of point it out that they kind of do reveal Ed to maybe be kind of bisexual and okay with that. Yeah, nobody really makes a big deal out of it. I guess we're I mean, into, I guess we're into the spoiler talk now. Uh, I I think that maybe we can we can start segueing into that. I think we've kind of given enough. Let's let's just say here that if we've piqued your interest, go watch it and come back because from here on out we're gonna start talking about really spoilery reveals in the plot for both seasons, and if you don't want to be spoiled for anything major and you want to go look it up now's your time to jump ship and come back and finish the rest of this later okay uh go go enjoy uh some orville and come back to us later because we're just going to start talking about it from here on out there's your warning got it uh, bye to those who want to jump ship now everybody else here we go yeah. Okay. So. <laughs> Where do you want to start? <laughs> well, we were just talking about uh, Ed and the bisexuality, so yeah. why don't we uh, talk about the... Uh... <laughs> Ed's entire arc is, you know, interesting. Uh, as we said, it starts with him coming home to his, at the time, wife Kelly in bed with another man. With a blue Rob Lowe. Derulio! That breaks Ed for a long time. As, you know, many people have said uh, in the sh within the show that Ed should have been captain by the time we get to the show, but he he hasn't been because that one incident hurt him so much. You know, it's he's become an alcoholic. He's his he's he's gained this reputation. Mostly because, you know, it, he had buried himself so far into his work that he felt it ruined his marriage, so he's not really trying anymore. Yeah, and, you, know, you know, I think at the time, at the beginning, he was, like, commanding a, a space station somewhere, and he was, he was like, really moving up, and, and people were saying he was going to be captain soon, and then he just sort of fell off of it when Kelly uh, was in bed with, with Derulio. Yeah, because she was feeling neglected at home because he was doing so much with his career. Yeah, and he gets you know he's given the job of captain on the Orville. He doesn't know why. Eventually, we find out that Kelly has felt so guilty over cheating on Ed that she pulled some strings and got him the job, which Ed resents. Feeling that he did not earn that chair. And him doubting himself is a central theme throughout both the first and second seasons. 
you can say that about a lot of the characters in this show is like do they even deserve their their spot do they feel like they deserve their spot you know i talked about it with alara she she feels she doesn't deserve her position she's only there because of her biology and and so so on and so forth but you can you can link that to any of the other characters in the show you know alara's got a great uh, arc where she's you know like she, you say she's doubting herself and then she 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 proves that she's a, a in addition to being you know a, like a, a security brute she's also a gifted investigator and she can solve problems and she can lead her team yeah she shows herself to be a, a great leader when ed and kelly are put in the zoo and it goes to the episode where she conquers all of her fears. I like that we get that right off the bat with her because it doesn't treat her like a kid for very long. You know, we get that that bit right at the beginning where he's like, where Ed's like, oh, you're very young to be serving as a, you know, head of security and stuff but she's like well yeah but you know I'm really strong and I can punch walls and stuff you know we get that we get the jar of pickles joke right in the first episode and yeah. all I, I that. Love that I love that that becomes their little private joke with each other yeah it's so sweet um with that we get her her arc so soon of her overcoming her fears and being left in command and all that right at the beginning means that she gets taken out of that little kid role real quick. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad that they gave her kind of the first character arc of the series of, of all the, the characters, you know, because that could have turned real bad real fast you know um i, I agree and, and she I, she's even though she's no longer on the show she's uh still one of my favorite characters mine too she was that was actually one of the reasons i was so hesitant to get into season two i didn't even get into watch season two since we until we agreed to do this episode because she was my favorite character and i heard that she had left the show I also like Tala too because she's a like even though she's the same species and you know uh, clearly that that they're looking for some continuity there but like she's a completely different character and I, I like Tala too yeah not as much as I like Alara but I just I, I think Alara has is the right mix of adorable and badass I I kind of want to say something that might be a little controversial I do not like Kelly. I know so much of the show is like, oh, we really need to root for Ed and Kelly being a couple. I do not like Kelly. I can understand that. Kelly comes off in... And this comes to a head right at the end of season two where we get the the alternate universe storyline. Kelly, you know, when we meet young Kelly meets... meets well, she doesn't want to be called old. Well, younger Kelly meets adult Kelly. <laughs> and, and uh you know, less get, adult kelly meets slightly more adult kelly it's like there's yeah. only seven seven years between them you know sure but she doesn't want to be called old <laughs> so anyway so the younger kelly looks at her older self and says i had so much planned so many dreams and you've disappointed me i was supposed to be a captain 
I wanted to be close to my crew. You're distant. I plan to get married. You're divorced. Yes, things change over time, but even Kelly uh, sees that from her younger self that she has distanced herself. You know, there's a there's a hard line between having a beer at the end of the day with with a couple members of your crew versus telling embarrassing stories about yourself. You know, which you know when the younger Kelly starts telling those embarrassing stories. The older Kelly's like, hey, uh, they're not going to respect me if you keep on doing all of this stuff because you're still me. Well, yeah, and, that, that's then you know that that's Kelly's learned experience. Yeah, and, you know that then you, you see that a lot in in this kind of uh, science fiction pseudo military show where the you know, the, the commander has to uh, has to decide like how close they want to allow themselves to get to the crew and still be effective as a leader. And also her keeping keeping it professional between Ed as, uh, you know, throughout the series, Ed makes it clear that he's still in love with Kelly after all of these years. And, and, and Kelly I, definitely still has feelings for Ed, but she also knows that they have to be able to maintain a professional relationship. The thing is, is that I don't think, I think it's down slightly more to casting. You're not a fan of Adrian Palecki, then? Uh, well, hmm. I will say, Ke Kelly's not my, my favorite character on the show, but I, I do like the, the Kelly-Ed relationship. I want to like the Kelly-Ed relationship. I do. I really, really do. And when Kelly and Ed are together and you know they're trying like I really want to like it and the second they kind of focus on her I'm like oh I really do not like this chick <laughs> like you know um, but I oh. also kind of I, I might just kind of be down to the casting because I really didn't like her character on S.H.I.E.L.D. either Mm. Yeah, she wasn't a great choice for Wonder Woman either. And all that Wonder Woman pilot was one of the worst things I've ever seen in my entire life. So yeah, it's like kind of when when she left Shield, I was like, oh, okay, good. There, there, <laughs> you know? were, there were a couple moments in their relationship, like yeah, I think I mostly agree with you about about Kelly and, but, but I like I like at least from on Ed's side the dynamic of the relationship. But there's 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 there's, there's a few moments where, where I really like I like it. And, uh, you know, there's an episode I watched a couple days ago in preparation for this where Ed finds out that Kelly put in a good word with him with Admiral Halsey to, uh, so to, for, for the captaincy of the Orville, and, uh, and he gets upset with her. And then he just gives her this sweet little kiss on the cheek at the end of the episode, and I thought that was a really sweet moment. Yeah, I love Ed's half of it. Like, Ed seems like really good guy and you want him to be happy you can see what he wants out of her you know and mm -hmm. you can see where where he was attracted to her and the sorts of things that and the fun side of her and that brings out good parts of him and you're like okay i want this guy to have fun and i want this guy to have confidence and she seems to bring that out of him but also she seems kind of 
demanding and controlling, and I don't like that. That can actually go work into what I wanted to talk about was Kelly's relationship with Cassius. Cassius? Cassius. Yeah. Cassius? Cassius? (laughs) But, you know... (laughs) I love Ed asking how to pronounce the name and then immediately pronouncing it wrong. Yeah. They start out really well as a relationship, and once once he wants to get serious with her, she's backing off. You know, he says, you know, we've been together a while, and if it works out, I would like to get married someday. And Kelly is like, no, I've done marriage. I don't want to do marriage again. What you want out of this relationship and what I want out of this, out of this relationship are two different things, and it's not going to work. And I think it is the demanding nature of Kelly that ultimately screws that relationship up, too. Now, is is especially when she is insisting, she's upset because Cassius is not jealous over Ed. And as I could tell you from experience, I've been in that situation. Not fun when your significant other is specifically telling you, I want you to be jealous because of this person. You're too nice of a guy in this scenario. And when that's, when that's, I saw that scene, it was like, okay, this relationship is not long for this show because Kelly is, Kelly's expectations is not matching up to the reality. Yeah. Cassius is a really good guy in the show. He does nothing wrong, for the most part. That... Until they break up, and then he gets real creepy. Yeah. 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 Fair. Setting Bruce Willis flower and... Uh... <laughs> but it's almost... That is also kind of Ed, in a way. That she seems to have... Maybe that's kind of why it didn't work with, with Cassius either. I don't know. I think the thing that I really hate the most is when Derulio comes back and, you know, there's the whole bit about he's in heat and everybody falls for him, including Ed, you know. At the end, they're like, oh, hey, wait, you go into heat once a year. You met Kelly about a year ago. Were you in heat then? And Derulio looks at him and he goes, uh, maybe. Sure. Which definitely means no. Like, the way that line is delivered is like... He's trying really hard to spare Ed's feelings. Yeah, it's like, no, but I'm gonna give you plausible deniability if you want to latch on to that dude because you're a nice guy and I don't want to hurt you anymore. But the problem is, is that Ed grasps onto that, like, just an absolute lifesaver in a storm, you know? Yeah. And the problem is, is that Kelly lets him. You know, she's. I think she's trying to, to do what'll make him feel better, because so it won't affect how he, he commands the ship, maybe. And the thing is, is that it, it very much seems like she does not want to get back together with him. And yet she keeps stringing him along. When he starts dating the younger Kelly, she seems very jealous of that. Yeah. Although when they're when he's in the club with younger Kelly, I can I feel that in my 
in my very soul. Yeah, that. But like, just being what? too old to be in my club like that. Oh yeah, that looked like my nightmare. <laughs> that, that that dance club. <laughs> it was like, why is everything so loud? Portis <laughs> and Clayton seemed to like it. <laughs> yeah, and Yafit Yafit was getting down with the moves. Yeah. <laughs> I hated that whole Derulio bit because it was so obvious that no man the answer is no and everyone just leans into that for him you know yeah Wash might have romantic feelings for ed still it's not enough to keep a relationship going yeah i think it's ed, just, ed's feelings for kelly are definitely way deeper than kelly's feelings for ed yeah and we see that when we get back to the past where, you know, after their first date, 9 a.m. the next day, Ed's calling her, asking her for a second date. Like, he was really into Kelly from the start, and Kelly was like, oh, you know, he, this dude has no game, but uh, I'll go out with him. Why not? And that seems to be their entire vision to be from the beginning, is that she, he's, he's super into her, and she's like, oh, okay, it seems fun for now. But it turns out that we need uh, Ed and Kelly together to save the universe. Yeah. Well, actually, we don't need them together. We need them divorced and heartbroken. We need and them then... to have to have been together. To yeah, to universe. have been together. Speaking of relationships, I hate justice for Portis because he deserves so much better than Clyden. Yeah. Yeah. Let's kind of go into that whole thing. Bordas's storyline throughout this entire series is amazing. From the beginning, when they get the egg, and we find out that there are, in fact, female Mocklins. Can, can I take a moment to just point out how good the Bordas makeup is? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, when I've, he's sitting I've on the been... egg, like, that whole back piece, and, like, going down into his back, into his butt, and, like, the legs, and, like, the makeup is incredible. I feel yeah, this so is bad of... for Peter Megan, though, like, because you know that has to be just a nightmare to get into and out of that makeup. Yeah, this is one of the few aliens in the show, they have a full body makeup. Most of the, most of the aliens are just facial prosthetics and you're wearing the uniform, but this is just full body. Because, you know, the, like, they have to have the, the neck shape go into his uniform and onto his shoulders, so it's... He's at least got it down to his shoulders when he's wearing the uniform. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they use that makeup multiple times because, you know, again, when he ends up with the... Addiction? Addiction thing with the the holodeck porn program. Uh, environmental simulator. <laughs> yeah. He has to get back into that yeah. makeup well, the, the fact, again. Uh, the fact that they have so many naked Mocklins and they're, they all look distinct is also a, a really cool... Yeah, Kudos good for, for the makeup, makeup department, but oh, I feel so bad for those actors. Like, <laughs> there are the, times when knowing too much about film production makes yeah. kind of pulls you out of out of things. I have, to wonder, like, I have to wonder when the one holographic Mocklin starts licking Isaac's head. Is that was that an improv an, improv an improvisation? Uh, I like, don't that, know. That has to be right. Oh. <laughs> uh, Bordis in his his story because he does go through so much. He probably has the biggest character arc of any character in the series. 
Because there are so many episodes that that circle around his story and his people. Well, it it, it kind of mirrors, um, you know, you were talking about him being sort of the wharf of the of the crew, and it kind of it kind of mirrors wharf, you know, because when wharf first starts out, he he has to be more Klingon than than any other Klingon because of his position, and I feel like like Bordas starts off having to be more Mocklin than any than any other Mocklin because you know he's the he's like one of the few in the fleet and you know, he's got to be an example and all that stuff. And then he, by the end of it, he, he, he turns into a, a straight up revolutionary. Yeah. Yeah. So we start with the egg, which again, a Mocklin female, which in the Mocklin culture is a rarity and is to be shunned. And female Mocklins go through the procedure, the corrective procedure to go from female to male because they want to be a, they are a male species, a single sex male species. We find out that Clayton was born female and went through the corrective procedure and is very much uh, a traditionalist to the detriment of their, of his own character. Later in the show that they, they, you know, uh, Bordas calls him out on it, you know, you cling on to the old ways to your own detriment. Times change and you're refusing to change. Clayton, who went through the corrective procedure, who wants his child to also go through the corrective procedure, uh, looks down at females in general, teaches their their son to be to see females as inferior, even when there's another Mocklin who is heterosexual, is into females. Uh, Clyden looks down upon that as an abomination. And you're right, Bordas deserves a more understanding and better partner. And yet Clyden is the one that tries to divorce Bordas, you know, by by murdering him. I mean, yeah. Mostly because of Bordas's addiction. And we find out through therapy that Bordas resents Clayton for not fighting for their child. And that seems to be the turning point in their relationship. Is that- Honestly, that, that scene in couples therapy with Claire is so good. When when Bordas finally says, I resent you, and I will always resent you for this. <laughs> like, it's such it's such a powerful moment. Yeah. And like, um, that, that, that he can do, act that well through all those layers of makeup is pretty incredible. I do, I do like the point in couples therapy though, where where Claire is like, you know, we're gonna we're going to work out your problems, and Fortis is like, this sounds like an excellent idea. Do we choose our own weapons, or do you <laughs> give us weapons? Like, I was like, yes, that's yes, good couples therapy. And and as you know, as terrible as Clyden is to Bordas, he still does have some great moments in the show too. Yeah, there are there are some some good like, moments. Nothing but... against the actor because he he plays the character so well. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It is an interesting. I'm not saying that the Mocklin storyline is not without its issues, and a a lot of people do have very cogent uh, issues with it. I think the episode about Bordas and Clyden's child could have benefited from having a few trans people on the writing team for it. Oh yeah, very much. It com- it com- it comes off a lot like cis people trying to understand trans issues yeah. that maybe should have talked to some trans people. And like, I feel like they, they, I feel like they were almost there, and it just needed that kind of attention to to really make it something 
something really good. Yeah. Um, I, I think the episode about the sanctuary planet it comes off a little better. Yes. Because it is more... I mean, one, the use of Dolly Parton just makes it better. Cause, oh, yeah, the, the, you know. the, the whole fight sequence to 9 to 5 is just yeah. brilliant. Yeah, but... And, 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 and also the, 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 the Mocklin female representative on the floor of the Union Council just deadpan quoting 9 to 5. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it's it's also a little bit better of the fact that we discover that n- not is there just one, you know, lone hermit female Mocklin that's escaped. Like, there's an entire thriving rebel s- civilization of women, but also men, mm-hmm. men you know, that... That have escaped and are trying to, you know, raise their children in peace and build a better way. Which is a bit better, I think, in the the representative thing. It's it's dealing a little bit better with just kind of letting them be themselves, you know? Mm-hmm. And it does set up some great tension between the Mocklins and the rest of the Union as well. Yeah, the, the Mocklins are ready to leave the Union if they even entertain the idea of accepting the, the, the female refugees as an independent state. Yeah, and I hope they come back to that in the third season, well, honestly. Yeah, because it's still the looming threat of war with the Kalons, which... Uh, is why, why they, which is why the Union desperately needs to keep the Mocklins in for their weapons technology. Yeah. Um, like, been, like, you know, aside from all the great character stuff, the plot of the Orville is really good, too. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, even before the Kalons, you know, you had to deal with the Krill. Uh, you know, that they're, they were still kind of at a war state, you know, um, and they needed the Mocklins, so... The idea of your your ethical values and your potential survival uh, is is always a good tension. So I, I liked that. Um, I think I think uh, Bordis also gets the kind of saddest little story arc in the alternate timeline episode we see because. He ends up trapped on the Orville at the bottom of the ocean alone for months trying to survive, being like, well, Clyden and Topa have gotten away, and they were going back to Machlis to meet me. All of a sudden, rescue is here! And they were like, oh yeah, sorry, Bordis, uh, Machlis was kind of, uh, completely destroyed. Machlis go boom. And he was like, oh, well, uh, that sucks. Let's hope you can uh, correct the timeline because I have nothing to live for now. And also the the ship blows up at the end of that. So really glad they restored the timeline because it was kind of dead if not anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, It's definitely good they restored that timeline. Yeah. Um, But that was kind of the 
the worst of all possible things. The other, um, the other Bordas and Clyden story I really I love because it was just so ridiculous was that when they got addicted to cigarettes. My personal favorite was was when Bordas decided to grow a mustache. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> no. Remove that ridiculous thing. <laughs> yeah. That was the one time I was on Clyden's side. I was like, that's the one thing you've been right about this entire freaking series. And that episode had one of my favorite things in the whole series. As a professional musician, seeing the Hollywood Recording Orchestra on screen as the Union Orchestra was really cool. Like, those are all the musicians that make the, the make the soundtrack for the Orville and like and they were there and they were there in like prosthetic makeup as aliens and the, the conductor was the actual conductor that conducts the recording sessions and that was that was so cool to see yeah one of one of my one of my little music geeky moments was in the in the alternate timeline and that they have to raise the Orville up from underneath the water and everything the uh the thing is is that one of the people who uh, writes some of the music for the Orville, also did the music for Sequest. So a lot of the interstitial music for the Orville sounds very much like Sequest because it was written by John Debney. Uh, and so there's the Orville under the ocean <laughs> going along. With music that I would almost guarantee was written by John Dedmick because it sounds so much like his style. <laughs> so there I am, like watching a sci-fi show with like that sounds really. It was very nostalgic for me. Sounds like this other sci-fi show I used. Yeah, to sounds like this other sci-fi show that I'm like absolutely addicted to, and maybe one of my favorite things ever. Let's talk about the two major antagonist species because mm. they both have excellent plot lines. Um, let's start with the krill because they're kind of the the lesser, I guess, uh, of the the two. The krill, the longest, are... the longest reigning threat in the series. Yeah. The krill are basically the the Klingons, like more so than the Moklins are, but the, the krill are really like Klingons. The krill views the Union as godless. You know, well, they view everybody not krill as godless. So. Mm -hmm. Well, then they view them as not sentient beings because they haven't been touched by the hand of Avis. Yes. They're their god, we, Avis. We try harder. <laughs> Why? Why would Gordon know the advertising slogan of a 20th century rental car company? That has always been one of the things that that has bugged me, but it's such a funny joke that I'm willing to let it slide. <laughs> we see the Krill as kind of a mostly faceless uh, antagonist in the first episode. They're just the bad guys that we're at war with. And then we get the, well, now you have to go undercover and figure out what they're like and try to get us a copy of their holy book. And that is one of the best episodes just of the whole series, to be honest. The idea of going in there and then discovering they've got this weapon of mass destruction that you're the only people that can stop it, so you have to take out the ship somehow. But also there are little kids on board. 
Ed does his best to save the children because they're innocent. They haven't done anything. But also, he's about to kill their parents. Or at least somebody. Yeah. We we don't know exactly, like, if there's, like, a family structure on board or if they've been taken away to be raised elsewhere, you know. We don't exactly know how that works. Hmm. But there are children on board and that's that's where they draw the line you know it's so interesting though where um they they have the idea of where he says that to Talia she asks why didn't you kill the kids and he says you know they're not my enemy and she says, well, after what they witnessed you do t- today, they, they will be. You've guaranteed it. And the fact that this comes back in the second season where Talia goes undercover on the Orville as a human woman for the sole purpose of capturing Ed for her revenge. Well, I love that they set that up over several episodes, too. Yeah. Yeah. Like, they just have her on as the new uh, stellar cartographer or something like that. Yeah. And, like, Gordon wants to ask her out, and she ends up going out with Ed. I mean, looking back on it, you can kind of see the writing on the wall, because Ed said, you know, she's she's the perfect woman. She ticks every box. She's ticked more boxes than Kelly ever did. And Talia says, well, it's on purpose. You know, I designed myself after your desire and I became the most desirable woman for you to get you here to you know get what what we need out of you it is so fascinating that she talks about the children becoming his enemy and instead it's her well she was already his enemy but she talks about how it was that event that radicalized her she was just a teacher yes she was serving on the ship but she was just a teacher and she talks about how that moment made her really sign up for the military and she talks about how the the painful procedure of making her not only look like a human but fool their sensors to make her come off as human yeah, and deal with the the bright lights and the you know all the other stuff. If if I remember correctly, like the when they the thing the whole thing when they spared the children was what because weren't they about to deploy a weapon that was going to destroy like a colony of th- hundreds of thousands of people? Oh yeah. Like any reasonable being would see that and be like, oh yes, that's this was a military action to save a lot of people. Oh, abs- absolutely. I mean, that was her thing. But remember that Saleya was talking about, but that was, that was Avis's will. That Those mm-hmm. were soulless animals. Non-pe- non-people. Yeah, those were soulless animals. You killed actual sentient creatures. Yeah. So therefore, you did a war crime. We were just clearing a field. Yeah, you know, I mean, it was... Um, and I, I feel like 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 Ed and Gordon went out of their way to not commit a war crime. 
But according to the Krill, anyone who doesn't believe in Avis is yeah. not a person. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it, it is a an absolutely fascinating dichotomy, and that's what Ed keeps saying to her. You know, like you've you've gotta see that that the overreaction here. He keeps going out of his way to, you know, save her life even when she's put him in danger and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Return her back to her people even after she's gone out of her way to kidnap him and torture him and, you know. Well, he even sends her off with some of his favorite music. Yeah. We watch over and over the... The effort of Ed specifically trying to understand the Krill and figure out a way to broker peace. Gordon keeps saying, like, you know, no, forget it. We're you're not. And like, he's even okay with just kind of blowing up the whole ship and killing the kids, too, mm -hmm. you know? But it's Ed that's like, no, we're not going to do that. We will find a, another way. We're not them kind of deal. Yeah. Um, well, and, and I love that, like, you know, this is, you know, the whole thing with the Krill is part of Ed's arc is that he goes from this sort of screw up to captain of a kind of unimportant ship to the only one the Krill will negotiate with to sign the, the beginnings of their, their peace treaty. Yeah. And that sort of trust becomes important when we deal with the Kalon. You know, once we go through the whole arc with Isaac. Isaac yeah. Isaac and Claire's let's relationship. Let's talk about the, the Isaac-Claire thing just for a, a short little bit. Because you have him growing closer to Claire. And her Growing children. closer to her children. At first, just finding them interesting because it's a chance to deal with their, you know, the the weird quirks of their humanity. Mm -hmm. And but, it's, it's, you know, and it's kind of the uh, the data conundrum where data doesn't have uh, emotions, but clearly he does. I, I I feel the same with Isaac. Yeah. Well, it's. It's the TNG episode in theory, but done slightly better. Because, you know, you have the bit with Data, and I'm not knocking that episode because it's always been kind of a favorite of mine. You know, which was always Data tries to have a human relationship, mm -hmm. and it doesn't work. Except in this one, it's... The artificial life form tries to have a human relationship, and it kind of does work. Not perfectly, not the way you would expect, but it kind of does, you know? And it has a rocky start. I mean, like, you know, they start, you know, they grow closer as friends, and Claire starts to have feelings for him, and, you know, in his AI brain, it's a learning experience, and they have that they become intimate and he's like well at first at first he thinks that that's all i've i've gathered all the data of human relationships i don't need this anymore but then he grows to miss her 
like I said, you know, uh, he says, you know, my programs have gotten so used to Claire's presence that they're not functioning at 100% without her around. So even if he is an artificial being supposedly with no feelings, he's gotten feelings. <laughs> Whether or not they're emotions as we might recognize them, they're definitely some sort of feeling. That bit of him trying to make it up to her on the bridge and making it rain. The grand romantic gesture. Yeah. I'm so surprised that the, that the equipment didn't short out, even if it is virtual rain. They still got wet. Well, I'm sure it's, it's hardened equipment, and it's probably sealed against the vacuum of space, so why not against water? Yeah. I just hate to be the cleaning crew that has to come in and make it so that, you know, the captain's chair doesn't mildew after that. <laughs> I love Gordon's thing of, like, we are the weirdest ship in the fleet. <laughs> yep. Most definitely. Which, of course, leads us to the two-parter, identity. Isaac's heel, heel turn. Yeah, you find out exactly why he was on the ship to begin with. The Kalon had no intention of ever joining the Union, and now view organic life forms as not worthy of existence. Because they basically feel as long as there's organic life forms that they're a threat. Especially going through Earth's own history of enslavement. We go, we've learned yeah. the Kalon history that they were created to serve once they gained sentience that they were enslaved even further, even reprogrammed to feel pain when they went, when they were disobedient. And, yeah. hum and all organic life in every colony apparently has had a history of enslaving their own people. And that uh, that scene where Claire's kid goes down into the cavern and there's just the endless piles of bones is genuinely creepy. Oh, yeah. Like, that, 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 that whole reveal is so well done. And poor Ty, his, his, his faith in Isaac... Even seeing Isaac's own people turn against them and, and kill other members of the crew and be so cruel. And he's like, Isaac will protect us. Isaac will save us. When it comes to it, when when Isaac, um, when Ty is discovered after he's, he escapes, they want Isaac to kill him. Prove, you know, prove your loyalty and, and whatnot, you know. And Isaac can't do it. He... Isaac has been around humans so long, he's grown fond of them. He it, he starts talking of alternate ways. You know, we, we, we don't have to kill them. They have knowledge of the ship. We can, we can work with this. We're smarter than all of them, and we know everything about the ship thanks to you. We don't need the humans. You're showing compassion for humans. That's not the Kalon way. Can I... Can I pop in and mention that the, the Kalon gunheads are also terrifying. Oh, yeah. Like, ugh. I, I believe I actually literally had a nightmare with those in it. <laughs> especially especially in the alternate timeline where the heads can separate from the bodies independently. That bit where they are trying to teach Ed the consequences of his actions and they've got the guy in the airlock and Isaac is begging for the guy's life and you know Ed is begging for the guy's life and all that and it finally ends with them actually killing the guy 
and then we just follow the dude's body out into space and then the ships leave behind the guy and it's just the guy floating in space has to be one of the most tense and terrifying moments in a show and And it's in the the freaking orville like the goofy seth MacFarlane sci-fi show that is a really tense and horrific moment and bravo to them that's also one of the scenes where seth MacFarlane really demonstrates how far he's come as a live action actor oh yeah for someone known for comedy seth MacFarlane really does work well as a dramatic actor well comedy is the harder one yeah. If you can do comedy, you can usually do drama. So but, you know he's he's mainly for the most more most of his career has been a voice actor and like he's a little awkward at the beginning of the series, but like like by the end of by even by the end of the first season, he's just become such a tremendous actor. Like he's really believable in the role and and that that scene in particular where he's watching his crewman die on his watch, it's just it's heartbreaking. Yeah, there there are some really good moments for for him as an actor throughout the series, and he's he's come a long way. Um, so good for him. The reveal the the tension of some of the things throughout quite a lot of the scenes, like the you know the scene before it with the the thirteen button salute, and you know you're like, okay, they've gotten away with whatever this was they were just pulling off, and then it's like. Nope, they didn't, you know, <laughs> like, you know, the the scene where Ty is trying to help and Yafit is trying to save him. And yeah. when he does, when he does take out the one Kalon, he figures out their internal system, how it works, just because of oozing himself into that body, which becomes great information for the Union in their war with the Kalon. Yeah. We find out from Ty being you know, taken prisoner that Isaac really has developed what could be called feelings. You know, he he wants to save Ty's life and he will turn against his entire species. In order to save Ty's life, um, and, and and in doing so, has become an outcast. Yeah, he can't. He can never go home again because he turned against his people to save this one child. And essentially, saving the crew of the ship. Well, and it's and it's it's a double edged sword too, because you know, even though he made the sacrifice and went against his people, he's still never going to be fully trusted by the Union. Yeah, they wanted you know, they wanted to dismantle him yeah, again. Yeah, Ed and Kelly might 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 put an award for him to keep him on the crew, but outside of that ship, I, you know, he's going to be completely alone. And even on that ship, outside of a very small number of people, most of the people on that ship are probably giving him a wide berth. Yeah. You know, the side eye. Yeah, the bridge crew might trust him, but probably nobody else does. So, if all of this has made you interested in the Oro, please check it out. Season 3 is coming up. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, like I said, I slept on Season 2. I regret sleeping on Season 2. 
it's really good. It really season two miles better than season one, and season one was really good. So I would definitely recommend it. So let's ask the question: Does the Orville have the magic, Adam? Uh, it has the science. <laughs> yes, yes, it does. <laughs> Geeky. Absolutely. I'm definitely going to agree. Orville is really, really good. Check it out if you haven't already. I think that's all we can really say about about the Orville. So, uh, Adam, while you're here, is there anything you want to plug? Well, uh, we just finished with uh, the uh, the Renaissance Pleasure Fair with my band, but you can still check us out at the uh, search for the Poxy Boggards, P O X Y B O G G A R D S. Uh, if you are in the uh, Scottsdale, Phoenix, Arizona area, I'll be playing a show with Scott Kloppenstein and the Littlest Man Band, uh, formerly of Real Big Fish, uh, at uh, Pub Rock Live there in Scottsdale on June 11th. So, you know, right after this uh, episode comes out. And uh, you can find me on all the socials of note at Big Bass Bone, uh, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. What you know, all those other things, and uh, that, yeah, that's me. All right, so let's move on to next week. We are going to go back to the era of classic Disney, uh, with the Jungle Book, the original, the last movie that Walt Disney ever had any uh production in. That's going to be very interesting to talk about. Yeah, can't wait. So, yeah. So uh, check out the Orville if you haven't. Come back for the Jungle Book next week. And we will talk to you all next time. Bye. Jaloja. D- don't forget to flush afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> don't let the magic stop here. Join our conversation online on Facebook at Rewatching the Magic. Twitter at Rewatch the Magic. And of course, new episodes every week at rewatchingthemagic.podbean.com. Remember, the magic is for everyone. It only stops if you let it. <laughs>